0: All right, we are jumping into business, broken and smoking podcast, and this is uh, 046. We picked this song by the Talking Heads uh, because often you ask yourself now, you yourself how did I get here? Like, how did I? <laughs> how did I end up like this? Uh, and this is uh, a great, th- great topic today. We're going to be talking to David Quick. A uh, well-known, well-established culture index coach, a practitioner, also a fellow Pinnacle Guide, uh, business coach, uh, also a Vistage chairperson, right? Is that the way you said it? So uh, we're excited to get talking with you. We have uh, some great cigars we're smoking today. Yeah, We've got some great Four Gate uh, bourbon that you brought that from indiana so yeah. we're excited to dig into that so glad to be here david it's great to having you with us we're really excited we've been waiting for this for a while so uh we're jazzed to have you here buddy so um first of all i want to ask you how in the world did you get into this whole coaching world like what was that pathway like for you
1: so it probably starts with uh early life that In middle school, I started helping others play saxophone, believe it or not, and kind of a a natural draw to coaching Mm. sports all my life. Coached uh, little league, youth football, basketball, and uh, eventually in the Navy and wanted to be a teacher coach. Was the hey, once Mm. I retire from the Navy, that's what I'll do. But Past took me other places, uh, three-time CEO. After my last CEO stint, I said, all right, well, I wanted to do this so bad. And now that I've done it three times, I don't know what I was chasing, but it wasn't that. Uh, successful, enjoyed the work, loved the work, loved building things. But I uh, said, I don't know what's next, but it's not that. That led to Vistage chairing and some executive coaching there. And from that point, I've kind of focused on individual group coaching, culture development, and a lot of tools, a lot of learning along the way. Hmm. Vistage says uh, everything you've done in the first five years, you realize at some point was malpractice. Uh, and that's held true almost in everything that I've found my way to is that uh, we get better as we practice, we get better as we do, we get better as we learn. So, uh, But there was early roots of that. Uh, teaching saxophone as a junior high saxophone player for (laughs) younger saxophone players. What was uh, the alto, tenor? Uh, Alto primarily. Marching Mm -hmm. band played uh, tenor a couple times, but uh, alto was my my thing. That's great. And it's one of the things my mom forced me to do. uh, I graduated from high school and even had music scholarships said, yeah, I'm done with saxophone and haven't played it since I've graduated from high school. But uh, pretty accomplished, and that was because my mom forced that, music lessons. I had a music teacher that would, about halfway through the lesson, say, call your mom, tell her to come get you. You're wasting my time. Uh, so <laughs> early lessons in wow. account- accountability. That is yeah. super intense. Yeah, it was. Uh, she was.
0: You were in junior high?
1: Uh, high school then. But, uh, yeah, that was Division One music mm. kind of contest and all that stuff mm-hmm. so uh yeah Well wow. <laughs> fond uh or not so fond memories sure. anyway sure yeah
0: how'd you get from that to the navy i'm mean, what uh how'd, how'd you go yeah How's that's that a crazy, like?
1: crazy story too so my dad was in the air force uh and grew up kind of on air force bases moved back to indiana and my parents very wisely at some point when I was considering school said, hey, what about the service academies? And I remember going, what's that? I had no, <laughs> no idea what that even meant. And they very wisely, instead of pushing, said, hey, on our summer vacation this year, let's go look at a couple of them. So I went to Canada in my grandmother's station wagon and my two brothers and I in the back seat uh, all through Canada and then came down the uh, East Coast and saw West Point the Coast Guard Academy in Annapolis and kind of instantly loved Annapolis, just beautiful campus, all mm-hmm. those things. So I was like, sure. And my understanding was this is army Navy and kind of understood that, that what that's what that was in terms of the annual football game and learned some more and kind of went back uh, my junior year to look at it and went through the whole nomination appointment process. And at the end I said, I can always quit. So, um, wasn't convinced that was right for me, but was a, a fundamental part of kind of who I am and all those things. So, what'd you do in the Navy? Surface warfare. So, I drove ships, um, Desert Storm. So, I was in the middle of the Suez Canal and Bush's ultimatum. And uh, you do something called Change the Calm Guard when you're in the Suez Canal. So, you copy both the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, the teletypes started going crazy, delivered to the postman, postman eyes only, Tomahawk launch coordinate. And there were hundreds of those on Bush's ultimatum or the following morning and said, I guess we're going to war. So I was in the Red Sea for the first six months of desert storm.
0: And was that, 90, 90 what, 91 or two?
1: 91, I think, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Wow. And what was your role?
1: Uh, Lieutenant at the time. So surface warfare, drove the ship. Uh, officer of the watch, they call it, Uh, drive the ship, keep us safe, keep Mm -hmm. us all alive, all those things.
0: What's that book? Uh, It's Your Ship. Perfect book. Yeah, I love that ship. I have a couple clients that I love that ship. I love that boat. I love the book. I love that vessel. (laughs) (laughs) Are you
1: trying (laughs) to get to that? Yeah, I'm Uh, trying to get to mine. This is a great conversation already, man.
0: I really appreciate you being here. Cheers. So um, a couple of clients that I've given that book to, and it's been life-changing for them, you know, as far as how to get involved in uh, talking with all the boots on the ground folks, getting them to weigh in, kind of showing them what it looks like when somebody that's very, I don't know, senior kind of takes everybody and says, hey, let's put our heads together and talk about this thing. And it's a great practical example of how to go around. I loved how he interviewed every single member uh before it just in his first week or two or, or so um as the uh what it would be the captain Correct. Is, is, yep. is that right captain. yeah yep. so um that was great I loved it and i i think that was when did he write that two thousand or something like that it's been, it's been a while twenty years or so
1: yeah, it's been a while very good book
0: what's his name can't remember
1: um uh, so, so like arm your- off or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it starts with like,
0: an A. Yeah. yeah, we'll get it in a minute. Yeah. He has another book out that uh, I've heard is good. I have it, but I haven't read it yet. So that's interesting. How long were you in the Navy?
1: Eight years active duty, a couple years in reserve, uh, which was a requirement. The Navy uh, was asking for people to leave and actually paying them to leave. They had just paid for my master's degree in education so I could one day teach and coach and I raised my hand and said, how about me? And they said, sure. And uh, all sounds great. It's probably one of the points in my life where I was most, most fearful. I remember sitting on a couch in Annapolis, like kind of crying, going, what the hell am I doing? Because it had been everything i known to that point. And of all things, I was going to go sell laboratory equipment, which I knew nothing about. I hadn't really sold anything in my life. And was like, I'm, you know, top of my career. Rank, what, 28 rank or something? 30? Yeah. 20, 28 years old, probably 28, 29. Yeah. Hmm. Going, Hey, this is what I've known pretty much my whole adult life. I've done remarkably well climbed, you know, that, that military ladder. And the real reason for leaving was uh, family separation, but also that you kind of have this time and rank that you're going to be this rank for a certain period of time, no matter how well you perform. And, you know, that led to all right, well, where, where can I find a job that doesn't have that? And probably my early real opportunity was with CentOS. They were hiring a bunch of junior military officers. It was a steam plant. I was an engineering officer the watch. So it was kind of the same thing. And I had the aha that this is kind of the same thing, where I interviewed, went up to a plant uh, outside of Detroit, and started asking questions like, well, when should I expect to be promoted? And they're like, well, when the plant manager dies. <laughs> And, uh, I said, yeah, this is not how, and how
0: old is he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was, yeah, Uh,
1: this might not be what I want. So that led to a bunch of conversations and we'll talk about mentors, I'm sure, but reached out to a bunch of people that had left and had success and said, Hey, what should I do? And almost every one of them said, sell now, go figure out how to do that. Do that early in your career. You won't want to go back to that once you have success. And that turned out to be fantastic advice. And, you know, did that early in my career. Uh, as I left the Navy.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so you went from that to CEO of some sort. So what was that?
1: Yeah, long long climb. I say long. Uh, as soon as I left the Navy, I said, hey, I want to be a CEO by the time I'm 40. Uh, left my last CEO stint at 42. So quickly climbed corporate ladder. Uh, was promoted within the first six months. The job I took was uh, not a usual job for new hire uh, a gentleman named Bill Daniel I still remember uh, interviewed with him in Annapolis there was a snowstorm I had an interview scheduled through a recruiter knocked on his door and he's like what are you doing here'm i like I have an interview he said Did no one called you to cancel I said no that's I have an interview I'm here and uh, ended up hiring me uh, he The job was account executive that I interviewed for, and that's over a thousand accounts. I just said, not doing that. That's not gonna serve me well. Took a job called key account executive that had 60 accounts in Indiana, Ohio, where where we sit, so I covered this territory Mm -hmm. early and uh, found my way to success, again, through other help. One of my early ah ahas is I know nothing about this. So I went to a lab director Carol McRae in Cincinnati at a Jewish hospital and pretty quickly said, Hey, I know nothing about laboratory I know nothing about selling, just left the Navy and help. And she put her arm around and said, I'll teach you everything you need to know. So wow. she did.
0: So you so- You started CEOing. How did that, like, talk about that, going from that to Vistage? Like, how did you get interested in Vistage? And talk about Vistage for a sec for folks who don't have any idea what that is, which is surprisingly many.
1: Yeah, so uh, left my last CEO stint in Avon, Connecticut, which uh, lived in Avon, worked in Torrington, and said, hey, what's next? Moved back to Indiana, said, uh, we're going to raise... Uh, two of my youngest sons. I so four sons. The two youngest were still uh, at age where they needed mom and dad. And we moved back to Indiana and lived with my parents for a short period and said, hey, what's next? And was looking for all kinds of things, was doing some consulting uh, in kind of the medical space that I had left and having some early success there, but it felt kind of the same. So I'm like, hey, this is not what I want to do. And I can't remember, honestly, whether Vistage found me or I found them, applied to an opening, don't know, Uh, but met with a fantastic lady, Jean Lauterbach, who was uh, at the time best practice chair in Cincinnati. We met uh, at a German restaurant in Batesville, Indiana, and she just kind of explained what Vistage was. I was super intrigued. And, you know, Vistage is a CEO or business owner, peer-to-peer advisory group, so groups of men and women that. Own businesses, run businesses, are the leaders of their business. Get together every month. Get together every month and help each other. Serve as an advisory board. And Vistage frames itself on what they call care frontation. So, how do we demonstrate that we care? And how do we confront? So, very similar to the concept in Radical Candor or others, where we are going to push and say, Hey, because I care, I'm going to push you hard. And so, uh, explored that with her they have a whole process to train you. The training was fantastic. You head out to San Diego for a couple of weeks and they teach you to launch your group, which is probably one of the hardest things I've done actually. Um, yeah, you're, you're selling something that's really hard to explain that we're going to get in a room together and I'm going to facilitate this and we're going to be rosy and Hey, will you pay me 13 to 1500 bucks a month to do that? And most CEOs look at you like, what are you talking about? So, uh, in their wisdom, they help you through that process. Um, you go deep into feedback and some things later topics, but uh, really good at that whole process of preparing you. But I think in my new chair group, there were 65, 66 people that uh, started, and I think six or seven launched a group. So it's a, wow. uh, yeah, it's not a... It's pretty tough. Yeah, it's not an easy thing. And not that there's any... Rocket science, I think it's just, it's uh, you're selling you, first and foremost, so much like our business coaching, it's uh, how do I demonstrate that this will have value for a business owner, CEO, and the real power is the group, so it's a meaningful, yeah, and masterminds, peer advisor groups have been around forever, uh, if we can go all the way back to Aristotle and others, Ben Franklin and his, uh, uh, what do you call his, leather apron group where it was, hey, what book have you read? What did you learn? And that was kind of the, the best thinking at the time. Uh, ben Franklin had that group, and mm. there's a bunch written about it. But mm. uh, you know, this is, I think, launched in the 50s, and there are now 20,000 CEO members across the world, I think mm. they're in 25 countries or something now. I have never heard of the leather apron Ben Franklin thing. Junto. I just thought what it was called. He called it Junto uh, or the leather apron and there's a couple articles you can find, and uh, they're, I think they're, uh, I forget what they call it, but it's like, here's why we get together, and it was like to share the news of the community, learn from each other, and it's just, it's written in the uh, language of the time, so it's an interesting read just on the kind of, uh, their charter is probably what it was.
0: And he was, wasn't he a Philadelphia, Philadelphia mm-hmm.
1: guy? So it was kind of the society and minds in Philly at the time. mm
0: mm-hmm. That's interesting. I'll have to uh we'll have to
1: dive into that. that. sounds really really cool.
0: I've been looking for some new stuff to read lately. I've just finished uh a Thomas Sowell book, um, uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Really mm. interesting. I thought it was recent and it's from O five. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Uh, I was it's... shocked by by that. Um really, really uh scholarly discussion about the history of slavery, history of racism, history of of uh, uh, he's an economist, um, and so he comes at it from economic viewpoint. Mm. It's very, very well, well written. Tons and tons of data. Tons and tons of yeah. You know, whatever. Anyway, just finished that and uh, started reading. Think again, Adam Grant, and mm. um, still in the middle of worldly philosophers. What's his name? Starts with an H. Yeah, that's taken a while. Heil Brunner yeah. or something yeah. like that.
1: Um. I so. I just started Obsessions of a Pricing Man and uh started listening to it on tape. I've heard of that.
0: Yeah, who is that?
1: Uh, yeah, I can't remember the name and it's funny. Greg Cleary, uh, our, our our leader brought it up today in our uh, process. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't think it's an audible book is my sense right now. I think it's one where you're there's some formulas and what's yeah. ideal pricing, yeah. how do you anchor? I mean there's a bunch of stuff that I think is probably more uh highlighter pen and paper not the uh i'm trying to figure this out as i drive down the road but yeah i I did listen to the first two chapters on my way today so
0: yeah this adam grant one is is uh i would not read it i have it on the shelf but i would not read it if it wasn't audio it's it's kind of it's got some good stuff but it's just he reads it and he kind of annoying me i don't know (laughs) can
1: you make it go faster yeah,
0: I should. Like, I I never do playing. that. I I just it seems immoral to me. <laughs>
1: it's Go fast. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I was at one point three today. So I oh I man, said, you don't there you mind. go. All so right, that's up. a
0: great yeah. that's a great call.
1: That's, that's, you get a little chip monkey above that, but yeah, is still mm-hmm. kind of the narrator's tone, just a little faster. Mm. Yeah. Good call on these smokes, by the way. Oh, good. What
0: is this thing? I can't La- remember the La- name La- of it. Sencia.
1: All I know is that they had a, a big selection, and I was like, that looks really good. Mm. Yeah. Get Alma that. is the yeah. Alma Fuente. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Well, so when were you Vistage? Uh, when did you start doing that? Like, how long ago? Uh, probably that?
1: nine plus years ago. So I think I launched mm-hmm. my group nine years. I still have founding members in Bloomington, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, the group's grown. It's... Uh, Diverse group of people. I think uh, at one point we had a 22-year-old and a 72-year-old. Wow. I got staunch uh, Republicans, super liberal, Dems. Mm. Uh, I could tell all kinds of stories. But, yeah. But uh, love the diversity of thinking. That's the power of that group that you'll get. Uh, you know, uh, the, the most uh, liberal, hippie, uh, child of the 60s next to a guy who makes concealed carry uh holsters mm-hmm. looking at each other like why are we sitting here together uh and they end up helping each other in their business so yeah, it's that's been, great it's been really that's good. great yeah
0: this think again book he's uh he's challenging folks to uh re just to reformulate um uh, and he's a he's a wharton um he went to harvard uh and he's a wharton guy now wharton um uh, professor, psychologist, psychologist, psychologist kind of reminds me of, uh, Angela Duckworth a little bit. Oh, that's interesting. Grit. Her, her angle. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, um, so we're going to, I want to dig deep into culture, uh, index, I almost said culture code, culture index. Have you read culture code
1: by the way? I don't know. Great book Yeah, I don't by know.
0: Dan Coyle, Daniel Coyle. What's the gist? Uh, he goes around and, um, uh, uh, um. Uh, Studies might be a little strong, but um, looks into seven or eight really high performing cultures. Uh, one of them is uh, SEAL Team Six. Uh, um, I've read it, yeah, and uh, IDO, uh, a couple of uh, comedy troupe, uh, Danny Meyer, restaurant right. guy. It's really fascinating, and it's yeah,
1: what drives culture, yep.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, I found I got a lot out of it uh, just from. Really, and almost anecdotal, just like oh, that's what it looks like, or that's how you do it. It's kind of practical, kind of observational. So uh, he's a Cleveland guy, apparently. Yeah. And um, Kimberly, Kimberly Dyer knows him. Yeah. So we're like, hey, I guess he's her neighbor or something. Oh. Well. So we're working that angle, see if we can get him in here. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, so we want to talk about Culture Index. I'm fascinated with uh, any assessment that can help the entrepreneur client of ours uh, do a better job, putting the right people in the right seats, do a better job interviewing. I find, I mean, a scale of one to 10 entrepreneurs interviewing are at like a one or a two, maybe two and a half. They're just stinking bad at it. Generally speaking, I haven't found many, that are good. If and if they are good, they're to like a five or six. They're uh, they stand out. But so these assessments are very practical. And I have a couple clients that uh, use Culture Index. I have a couple clients that use other other things like Colby, um, the um, Pat Lencioni modality. The uh, six, the, the was it working, working genius, genius? Yeah,
1: and strength finders. Strength finder, predictive I'm familiar
0: insights. with that one a little bit with predictive, but I want to get first of all maybe paint a broader picture of how Culture Index kind of fits in the assessment world.
1: Sure. So um, I'll talk about it from primarily my view of it as a long term client. So I started using the tool about 19 years ago. Was one of the early Culture Index adopters. And I'll frame it this way so people understand it. So I took a call from a gentleman named Jeff Ward uh, that was calling to Cold Call. Uh, we were growing my home delivery company from, at the time, I think we, I'd started, we had four sales reps. I think by the time he called me, we are 25, and we had decided that that was the path to scaling. So much like the entrepreneurs listening to this, it was like, hey, how do we scale our business? What do we need to do? and we had kind of through trial and error tried to hire sales reps for the last uh, handful of years and we had we had purchased a company that had 25-ish reps that were all pretty good but we knew we needed to add 50 and so we had ads plastered across most major metros where people with diabetes are which is where the population is and jeff ward called me at a Thursday morning at about 7 a.m. and said, hey, I'm that guy that has to make cold calls to grow my business. Can I get five minutes? So it was a longtime sales professional, marketing professional. I was like, sure, I'll take this call. And uh, he said, instead of talking about what I do, uh, I see that you're hiring 50 reps or so in markets all across the country. If I could eliminate one bad hire, would you be interested? He said, sure. He goes, well, great. So, again, instead of talking about him, I'm going to send you this tool. I want you to send it to five of your best, five of your worst, and I'll tell you who's who. And I remember at the moment, like, game on, dude. Let's go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, classic, how do I challenge uh, uh, a highly autonomous, driven uh, entrepreneur? And that was perfect. And he did a remarkable job. He went through the 10 people and nailed uh, almost all of them, if not all of them. I don't you know. That's a long time ago now, but. What i remember clearly is i said hey jeff i got to run to a meeting you look at these 10 if i had to hire one which one and why and he he answered it um, in a remarkable way he goes well that's easy i'm like okay and uh what's amazing is he named our rep of the year for the last two years rep of the year at two other companies and said hey we call this profile and profile patterns because there's multiple patterns triple count triple crown winner so we look and say, what's the ideal for this type of role? And he says, Hey, for what you do, it's called persuader. She's a persuader. Her bottom graph is also persuader. So when we ask her what she thinks she needs to do to be successful, she essentially says, just wake up and be me. So from that point, I was like, pretty intrigued. How do I figure this out? Because this was, uh, you know, we're getting ready to hire 50 people. And so the rest they say is history, but, uh, what culture index does really well. And I think entrepreneurs the, the, the thing you alluded to earlier is we seek data, we seek information and we look for something to help us make decisions. And in most hiring, that's our gut. You know, if it's not our gut, it's six people's guts that we sit in a conference room and go, Hey, Mark, what do you think? Hey Shane, what do you think? And we go around and go, I like Betty better. And the other person says I like bill better and everything after that is subjective. And so it adds data and objectivity to the hiring process And if you do that really well, I tell uh, folks all the time that that's about 10% of the value culture index, that 90% is how do I motivate, give feedback, uh, inspire people. And most of us understand golden rule, talk about that it allows you to live platinum rule. I can treat people the way they want to be treated. I can motivate them in a way that they want to be motivated. And, you know, the real part in hiring is I just eliminate bad hires. This is money ball for hiring. It says, hey, statistically, this person will succeed at this level based on percent match to ideal, because we can determine the ideal pattern for any job in any company. And it truly is that. It's not, you know, what is a sales rep? It's what is a sales rep at this company. So it just adds that layer of objectivity, of data. How do I ask questions in an interview? How do i follow up how do i reference check i mean the list goes on and on, on how you can use this data so it's much like uh entrepreneurs trying to make decisions on uh, financials without financials and that's how most right. hire <laughs> yeah. um, and so here you now have a set of financials that you well, can that's
0: how they at. do financials too yeah many <laughs> and i think right? that's you
1: know if we talk about <laughs> the classic challenge of entrepreneurs it's that which yeah. is hey let's press forward and um, you know, I used to tell my organizations all the time that you'll get certainty even in the absence of it, so you know we're paid to have the answer we're paid to press forward mm. even um when we don't have it we we press forward so hmm.
0: that's great i uh I've seen it uh, practically with with a few clients um as far as in their hiring process and in their managing process too helps them too. Get organized around the role, and, and they. This one particular client, they um, put the their CI, that little graph, that little in uh, the kind of the four dots and the lines connecting them on their on their accountability chart.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, I think they put it on their email. Uh, I mean, I've I seen it all. I
1: have people point. that have it on coffee cups, that yeah. have it on their cubicles, have yeah. it at the entrance of their yeah. desk. Uh, so yeah. And you see that with others as well. So you'll see that with Working Genius. You'll see that with Predictive Index. You'll see that with other profile types that it helps us understand who we're encountering and how do we act and behave? How do we motivate? How do we understand? That's what we're dealing with. So. Yeah. So talk about the uh, what exactly it's, uh, I don't know, measuring. So measure seven key work-related traits. You've alluded to the first four are measured against the norm of all people and those are autonomy, social ability, patience, and conformity. And essentially we're saying, you know, do you have more or less than the norm of those traits, and how much more or less of those traits do you have? And what's remarkably powerful then is that we can go, well, what's required for this job? And the proverbial square peg, square hole, round peg, round hole, we can determine, we can ask questions, we can dive right into the heart of the matter and interviews on hey this is what this little tool says and it's statistically strong most of our parameters fall between 0.88 and 0.94 for any high data compliant uh, conforming people that want to know more information that will be on this podcast but uh, you can measure all that statistically and then predictively ask questions and look at match against ideal uh, types of roles in any organization
0: so autonomy, sociability, <coughs> patience.
1: Patience and conformity. Conformity. Those are the four measured against the norm. And then we also measure logic, ingenuity, and something called energy units. Energy units.
0: Well, didn't we hear about Ergs. that with Ergs,
1: ERGs, right? Yeah, a little different than that, but yes. <laughs> okay.
0: All right. Logic, energy units. Uh, what was the third one? The second one, I guess. Logic. Ingenuity. Ingenuity. Okay. Ingenuity hosting and writing notes at the same time energy units is probably not that great of an idea, but I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> um, so the um, so I've seen all the little graphs. So you, you take the test, and out comes this uh quadrant. Is it is that's it, not quadrant?
1: Is it Cur- curve shape? So uh, you know, if you take the assessment, it instantly scores uh, you against the norm of all people for those first mm-hmm. four traits. And let's say typified pattern or a pattern, uh, we have 19 different patterns. And you know, in a broad way, what you're doing is taking over 655,000 different combinations of data and putting them in 19 patterns, four groups. Those four groups are visionary, uh, technical research, social, and organizational. And then the 19 patterns range from things like daredevil to traditionalist. And, you know, most of the names indicate what the foundational personality is here. And, you know, if we look at daredevil, that's a classic entrepreneurial, all gas, no brake, uh, high autonomy, low conformity, sees the future, very influential, can get people to follow them. But our train wrecks on process and details and follow up and. Everything that we think of as entrepreneurs. Yeah. Uh, I like to think about daredevils as, uh, and I can't remember who uh, said this, but they're both the arsonist and the fire brigade Mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, That sounds right. Yeah. So that's kind of that classic uh, daredevil. Mm. And then traditionalist is think quintessential good soldier. What will I do? What you tell me to do? What will I do? What you've trained me to do? How will I do it? Remarkably the same over and over again. And, You know, there's jobs in our organizations that need that. Uh, Most entrepreneurs couldn't do that work. Mm -hmm. So it's how do we help them understand what they need and find those people for specific roles. Hmm.
0: So explain the dots uh, that the way that closer to the center means something and further away means something. So there's some sort of explain like the graph or the like the layout of the dots, first of all.
1: Yeah, so the first thing the tool does is establishes your norm. So it says, hey, against the norm of all people, this is where your norm line is, and it is the statistical norm. And then we measure distance and direction from the norm for those first four traits. So as an example of autonomy, if you're right of the norm, you have more autonomy than the norm, more self-directed, proactive, assertive. And that ranges from, we'll use the word confident to a word uh, arrogant a-hole. Hmm. And so as you get more... Uh, distance from the norm the intensity abnormality the extremeness of that trait shows up and so if you're more near the norm that's a more malleable flexible trait for the individual As you're more extreme statistically less normal or abnormal and means harder for you to modify okay so you know, if you have someone that's uh, distance from the norm and it's just Six Sigma quality data or the, this essential Six Sigma statistical data. So those that are Six Sigma trained will understand that we're just looking at those Six Sigma from a personality standpoint instead of process. And we're able to say, well, how far from the norm is this trait? And as you get further from the norm, more extreme, both right and left of norm. So right would be more of that than the norm and left would be less of that than the norm. So for autonomy, which is this confident, self-directed, you're going to range from arrogant a-hole to meek uh, doormat. And almost everyone else uh, statistically is between those two things. Okay.
0: So the arrogant is off on one side of the chart and the meek is off on the other side.
1: Correct. And so you have this spectrum where in the middle is the norm of all people. Yeah. So
0: if they're lined up, the dots are kind of lined up, stacked up on top of each other.
1: That means they're going to be a flexible, adaptable person across yeah. those traits. Huh. Yeah. Interesting.
0: So we're aiming this uh, podcast at kind of really the entrepreneur. That's such a broad word, but visionary leader, second-in-command leader the kind of managerial or the go get it done executing leader um, the business owner operator uh, or perhaps an advisor to those folks so uh if that being the case talk about practically how to take the test like how do you or this assessment i guess not test but you know what i'm saying so how do you, what, 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 does it look like for, let's say a business of 50 employees like, huh, this sounds great. What, what should they, what would be a next step for them?
1: So almost, uh, every advisor in culture index will set up a demo and the demo is a no cost. Try the tool 30 days, 60 days, and you're able to assess your team, get face validity of the tool, understand it. But, uh, what you get back is the statistical data on anyone that completes it, um, takes less than 10 minutes to complete, strong statistically predictive of behavior and uh, look at the dynamics of the team and understand where plus minus strength weakness discord friction uh where people will work together well I and mean, all of that's understood pretty quickly by uh advisors that understand the tool um you know again as my customer experience my advisor was uh priceless uh couldn't have helped me more understand people i mean i could tell story after story there were you know we would buy companies and i'd struggle with a profile saying hey how come this guy can't perform and he would go i call that pattern a uh, product of spoilage Mm. meaning uh they've been given everything their whole life and will struggle to do anything for you and that's what we were seeing, and so Mm. Uh, very insightful, and it just becomes years of experience understanding the tool. Uh, clients that take on the tool and understand it will get that experience just by using it and start to understand what these patterns mean, uh, what a dot position means, how to interpret that in hiring, how to think about that in giving feedback and coaching. And it just, again, provides uh, objective data for you to make decisions around. Hmm.
0: So then, how how do they? So they get they take the test and and uh, uh, assessment. Now they have, uh, let's say, a handful with their maybe leadership team. Is that is that a pretty common pathway to start with?
1: Yeah, most demos we say, hey, do the leadership team and five to eight top performers, five to eight that are struggling with the work assigned, and you know we'll either identify those proactively without uh, identification or walk the the business owner and leadership team through that. And then, you know, if it's something that you look and go, hey, we think this tool will help uh, hire, inspire, motivate, give feedback, then they can acquire the tool, sign an agreement, press forward. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's based on unlimited use of the tool, annual subscription, based on total number of employees, and then the number of people that go through a a day-and-a-half workshop to get you up to speed on the tool.
0: Okay. So you come in or the, the advisor will come in and kind of train them up on it exactly yeah one of the things about these a lot of these assessments is you're kind of like <clears throat> flying by the seat of your pants a little bit and there's a lot of value to them but they need somebody to really kind of hold their hand and and walk through it right
1: yeah so, so i and others and you know jeff was this for me uh unlimited access call me when you need help uh, mm-hmm. so probably much like you treat mm-hmm. your clients so uh clearly there to help them, help them understand the tool. Uh, I joke all the time and say, Hey, your first uh, encounter with culture index is kind of preschool, the day and a half workshops, kindergarten. And if you want a PhD, you can get that in the next year by just learning, applying the tool, asking questions when they come up. And, And again, just like anything, spend the time and energy to understand it. So, um, My clients, we work hard on how do you embed this tool and all of those things. Hiring, coaching, succession planning, how do you motivate lead. So anyone that is uh, responsible for payroll, uh, hire, coach, fire, should, uh, if you bring on one of these tools, should go through uh, that workshop and learn the tool. It's like anything else in your organization. What works that you don't let anyone know about, nothing. You let everyone know about it and teach them and show them how to use it. And then there's a higher likelihood of success.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Did you get pushback or have you found that, com- I don't know, it's kind of common, but the pushback from the staff once once this gets introduced in, in a company um where they're saying, "What what is this? You're, you're trying to tell me what to do or, you know, kind of root me out or,
1: Right. I mean there's always I mean for most people there's fear of what is this and I'll understand it uh, Most uh, culture index uh, adoptions include a rollout so we try to demystify the tool take your entire team through this is just an understanding of your personality that it's concrete data that there shouldn't be used as a weapon uh, shouldn't be used as an excuse and that we just help it help the organization understand. It just points to what most of us already know about the people in the organization uh, and how to then motivate, give feedback according to those personality traits. So there's not, you know, I understand the fear for most organizations, but it it confirms what we already know is probably the right way to to think about it and gives us data. And then that data is available for us to go, well, how do I hire using this data moving forward? How do I motivate and inspire and give feedback to my existing team and how do i get the most from everybody and you know the tool helps that and i think the organizations that understand that and use it and are sticklers on do i have right people right seat you know much like we do in the pinnacle work we look at Tom assessment and go hey what what's the performance and culture fit this is another component of well are they hardwired to do this work and you can add that to talent assessment. Many of my clients do that. They're able to look and say, well, how does this person perform? What's their culture fit? And how well do they match the job that we've assigned them to? So you know, there's a potential third component, which is are we asking them to modify behavior and stretch? And how hard are we asking them to do that? In Culture Index, we, we talk about that that requires energy to be that intentional and change our behavior. And most of us, when no one's watching, where there's an inordinate amount of stress, go back to our base level mm-hmm. pattern. So.
0: How does culture index compare to some of the other kind of well-known ones? Uh, and, and the ones that I know, I mean, I know more probably about StrengthsFinder than any of the other ones personally, but, you know, DISC, Colby, uh, uh, Myers-Briggs, I suppose that's a really different one. Of course, uh, Enneagram's really different, but just, how do they all compare?
1: Yeah, at the core, they're really not that different. If you look at the history of personality assessments, uh, all the way back to Marston, uh, turn of the century, early 1900s, um, that were measuring kind of personality traits. If you look at all these, they're, they're actually fairly similar. And then it becomes, well, two things, which is how strong statistically is the data? Uh, Culture Index has a big hand up there. If you look across all the assessments in the market, uh, it's the best – um, statistical significance I've seen against any of those assessments. There may be some new ones that have better, but if you look at uh, that statistical significance, you're going to see that's strong. The other is ease of use and the business model. So, uh, And then the third thing is who's helping you. So yeah. uh, like anything, yeah, sure. hey, there's this awesome data. So it becomes, um, you know, first and foremost, it's grounded and most of these assessments measure similar things. It's then, well, how strong statistically is it How easy is it to administer? What's the business model? So many assessments you'll find are pay per assessment. Um, we're uh, unlimited use essentially assess everyone. Uh, so every time you post a job ad, click here to apply, we should get a culture index and build a database, which is really powerful. You can then go back in that database at any point, go, Hey, I'm looking for someone that can do this square peg square hole uh, and pull all the square pegs out of the database. And then lastly is who's the person you're dealing with. How, how well do they understand it? And we spend uh, a lot of time and pride ourselves in mobilizing the data to move your business forward. So it's not just a cool, gee whiz, this is awesome data. It's how to use that, dis- that uh, data to drive your business forward. So
0: One of the things I see, <clears throat> I'm sure you see this too, is, is a, a, a visionary entrepreneur gets a hold of some new tool and they start flailing this thing, flinging this thing all around the business. Uh, And then a month or two later, they've kind of moved on to some other shiny object, you know, a squirrel, uh, book of the month, et cetera. Uh, So how, how do you see, and whether it's this assessment or others, what are some common factors where they, what are some keys, I guess, to kind of get over that first hump of neat tool to, all right, now let's actually make it valuable
1: for us? So, I'll talk about my own experience as a customer. So, my first year, cool data, this is awesome, Gwiz, kind of crystal ball, kind of uh, we'll call it parlor trick is kind of how you looked at it and said, hey, this is a little spooky, how does it do this? Second year renewal, a um, little more scrutiny on how we use it, but I renewed the third year and I turned to my uh, head of uh, sales ops and said, do the super big deep dive into data and come back and show me what the tool can help us do and should help us do moving forward, and super enlightening. And so you know, I push clients all the time to do this, which is how do you start to match the data? How do I use the data? How do I understand what it means? And what we found is we were primarily using it for sales reps, and at the time that we did this evaluation, we had, have, had over 150 sales reps in diabetes. We had about 100 in wound care uh, and about 30 in um Uh, ostomy slash colostomy. And we looked across all of them and said, hey, if we look at ideal pattern performance versus non-ideal pattern performance, what do we see? And what we saw is 3-to-1 performance to quota. We saw 4 to one zero to 6 month ramp. So, uh, 4 times more likely to be at quota at 6 months. And most of that holds true for my clients when they go back and look at that data. And it literally just becomes moneyball. I mean, this becomes a What is our on-base plus slugging metric in Moneyball? Yeah. Yeah. And you can look at that across any job. You can look at that for a warehouse worker. It does Mm -hmm. not matter. And if you can measure performance, you can then start to track and go, what does it mean by profile type? What that meant for me is after that point moving forward, if you wanted to hire a sales rep and they didn't have one of these two patterns, you needed my approval. Mm. So if you came to me and said, hey, we're getting ready to hire Tim in Tennessee, I would go, well, what's Tim's pattern? And if it wasn't Persuader or Trailblazer, I would say no. Or I would say, have you interviewed all your Trailblazers in the database in Tennessee? No. Please go interview those people first. And they would say, oh, yeah. And then I'd go through and say, great, I can pull up the database. Here are the 14 Trailblazers and eight Persuaders. You've interviewed these 22 people. No. And the answer for Tim in Tennessee is no. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's the willingness for someone in your organization to hold people accountable Mm -hmm. to, we have this data, should we use it? Yeah, isn't that a big... Again, again, it's the, we have a financial report at the end of the month that we look at it. And, you know, there are entrepreneurs and organizations that ignore that. And there are entrepreneurs and organizations that look at it and pour over it. So like everything, there's some discipline, intentionality, how well do we understand it? Are we using it? And that, you know, it helps us, I frame, it doesn't make any decisions for us. It gives us the questions to ask and the tool begs you to ask them. Hmm. So it's up to the organization to actually ask them.
0: Yeah. And that seems to be the rub. You know, we're having somebody who's willing to follow a process, somebody who's willing to execute around, Hey, we figured this out 14 different times and it comes out the same way. Did you do it the way we figured out? No, I didn't. Uh, you know, or even having that conversation around, Hey, don't we
1: have a process for that? Yeah. I mean, and we talk about this in pinnacle all the time. Uh, uh-huh. the head of the organization, entrepreneurial visionary leader often is a nonconformist. It is often a all gas, no break. That is my pattern. Uh, I am all gas, no break. And it quickly becomes, and where the tool helped me most is, I need people on my team that complement that, that will put the process in place, that will drive that even to the point that others in the organization are going, Hey, this person who's high conformity is driving me crazy. And I go, yeah, they should. That's what I'm paying them to do for me. And you know, they'll use derogatory terms for females and Mm. you know, uh, you know, this guy's a hard ass. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, they're doing exactly what I want them to do. And it's the willingness of the visionary second command leaders in the organization to go, yeah, we're going to use this. Um, we have this data, we're paying for this data. It's meaningful. And at the same way, when you say, Hey, waving it, you'll have some people like, well, we can't ever hire that pattern. And again, it's data and we have to ask the question. So it doesn't, you know, this takes us to AI and everything. It doesn't answer the question for us. It gives us more information. It asks us to ask other questions. And at the end, we, the leaders of an organization, need to make sound decisions based on that data.
0: Mm-hmm. What was your journey like with uh, kind of second command, you know, talking about all gas, no brakes? You you have to, the visionary leader has to have the wisdom and foresight to hire breaks and, 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 and respect the breaks, you know? And, and, uh, so what did it look like, look like for you? Were you, were you successful in hiring?
1: Very, and culture index was a big part of that. So, uh, I knew I needed, and, you know, it's the same for my admin support today. It was for my second command. It was for who's my sales operations person. Um, you know, I talk about what I loved most, In culture index is a pattern called specialist and specialist in the way I talk about them are guilt ridden workers. They don't stop working until it's done. They don't stop working until it's perfect. That, that drives something that feels like rigidity, inflexibility, and unwillingness to bend. And at times drives you crazy, but you're also then knowing that they're working until it's done and done perfectly. And Yeah, that's hard for me that says, hey, let's take the plane off. Let's grab all the seats. Let's put them in the plane, and we can put them in while we're up in the air. And the specialist says, that's a safety violation, and we can't do that. Hmm. And you have to compromise and figure out that metaphorically. But um, the tool helps you do that. And and for me, everywhere I went, I said, I need uh, a couple things. And my second command is a pattern called architect. It's high autonomy, uh, also high conformity. So it has more gas, which is more autonomy than brake. But it, it, it So in kind of common language, they can keep up with me strategically. They can understand where we're going. I don't have to give specific guidance and direction of where we're headed. As soon as they hear it, they go, got it, boss, and they're implementing. And they're putting process and rigor and detail. And much like the name indicates, they can help dream it, and they can put it on paper. They can pave roads and put up street signs. And... The rest of the visionary patterns can't do that. They yeah. can see the path forward. They have no strength on putting <laughs> up street signs or paving roads. It's like, yeah, hey, just kind of follow me.
0: Yeah. So, so the architect, if if I understand you right, <clears throat> they're able to dive into the dreaming process a little bit and kind of go, okay, I'm seeing what you're dreaming here. I'm, I'm dreaming with you maybe, but then I'm able to take that um, – dream without any measurements without any blueprint and say okay this is what this dream would look like if we actually did it
1: yeah and, they, and they answer the questions like hey we got to build this bridge here's the dream and they have to go well how do you actually build it and is it possible and they you know, so there are bridges that out. we could all look at and go that's an awesome looking bridge but will it support semi-trucks going across it no and an architect is a high detail Uh, against the norm, Uh, more autonomy, some more dream, but how do we actually do it? And it's grounded, which adds kind of that brake pedal or risk uh, pattern that says, hey, I want to take less risk naturally than the typical visionary. And what that really boils down to is, hey, we thought about this. What are the things we would actually need to do? What could go wrong? Some of the stuff that we talked about before we got on the podcast. It's like, what are all the ideas that could go wrong here? And most visionaries go, press forward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they learn from it and they, they make a mistake and go, yeah. oh, yeah, hey. And e- even, uh, you know, many visionaries uh, will repeat the same kind of mistakes sure. over and over again. Yeah. And so yeah, you want patterns around you that will at least cause you to pause, that you'll trust, um, and that have more detail or complementary. And so yeah. Tool really will help you with team design. You know, we have an org chart tool inside there. You can build your org charts, look at it, say what pattern should this be if it's an open position, <laughs> and start to understand, you know, what, what will complement me, what will complement leader, what, what will complement the rest of the team. And So, you know, there's, there's a deep dive into this that organizations can truly understand. But, um, you know, if we look at all the way back to EOS traction, rocket fuel, how do we, met, how do we uh, combine visionary, integrator, all that, there's a bunch of power in the tool to help with that. And then, you know, same across any team. Sounds like the architect
0: is kind of rare. Is that, is that fair to say, you know, somebody who's got execution abilities, like can able to take, write this thing out and then go do it. Like actually put, not just write it down on paper, but actually project manage the thing talking about the bridge.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at uh, every pattern, so I'll frame it this way, every pattern has, uh, every pattern, every dot position has both strength and weakness. So, um, architects, tech experts are uh, the best workers on the planet. Mm. What I mean by that is they are uh, independent, self-directed, able to solve problems, able to press forward, aggressively pursue results. They are introspective, meaning they think well, they solve problems almost instantly. They are impatient and they are conforming. So how well do they do work? Near perfect. How well do they solve problems? Near perfectly. How well do they press forward? Awesomely. They are because most are left-side social, they are not as inspirational as other patterns. They're a little more, it's your job, damn it, do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it brings tremendous value. And the, the downside of that pattern are twofold, that they're not the most inspirational. And that they uh, also think everyone else is capable of doing what they do. Yeah, And what you learn is you mature and get the wisdom and at least most entrepreneurs, is that, yeah, the reason I'm here is because I'm different. And the reason they're there is because they're different. And so you hit the nail on the head. It's a, it's a difficult pattern to find valuable when you find them, and it has both strength and weakness. And the way I frame it is so does every other pattern. So um, <clears throat> you even talk about it in some uh, context that every profile has value and every profile has tax and what you want to understand is, well, how much tax do I have to pay for the value of this profile? And for some profiles, the tax outweighs the value.
0: That's a really interesting uh way to look at that. I was this because I just finished this book by Thomas Sowell, I was watching various clips, and I've seen a bunch of clips of him from decades and decades uh in the past. He's been around since the early seventies at least uh debating and leading things or well leading ideas and so forth and um he was a student of Milton Friedman and he was involved with the Hoover Institute which Milton Friedman was involved in at Stanford uh I think I think Thomas Sowell is still at Stanford. He's been there for decades but one of the things he said is either him or Milton Friedman I was watching a bunch of stuff the other day be, because of this little rabbit trail he said there are no solutions; they're only trade-offs. Hmm. Uh, and so, because someone would say, "Well, we got to solve this, blah blah blah, education thing." Well, you know, and we need a solution. Well, there aren't any solutions; they're just trade-offs. When you do this thing, it's good at this, but it's, but it's going to cost here. There's you know pros and cons to both sides of all of these things, and these tools are are also there are trade-offs. You know, so uh, if you're going to get person. That fits this profile to sit in the seat, you would darn well better have a balancing act on the other side of the pendulum, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I mean absolutely you can just look at the first trade autonomy and go, hey, what does <clears throat> high autonomy bring? Well, it brings lead, direct, drive results, pushy, autonomous, solve problem. I mean all the all these positive things. What else does it bring? Stubborn, arrogant, hard headed. Do I listen well to others? Yeah. So it brings all of that tax and you have to look at the other traits and go, What am I looking for? Mm-hmm. And does this solve my problem? And you go, Yeah, partly, but there's gonna be tax.
0: Yeah. And that's so that's a great way to put it the tax as far as that's the trade off. You gotta pay you gotta you gotta pony up there's some table stakes to this thing.
1: And and you know, that's informed my thinking about people for a long time, including, you know, the people that are most important to my life, that, that they'll be value to me. And there'll be tax and that, you know, when we look at emotion or other things or how people handle stress or how we react situationally, we'll look and go, man, I value that. And there will be other parts of the things that we value that will come with an associated tax. And so, you know, if we look at, we'll just call range of emotion. One of those, we'll we'll see people that are super delighted when things happen. Well, what happens when things go wrong? They're going to be super bummed. People that are more flatline will be more flatline. And, um, we have to relish the highs and lows then of those people that have that range of emotion because we're going to really enjoy the high. Um, And so, you know, it just informs our thinking that every person brings this kind of unique strength, weakness, value and tax. I like value and tax because you look and go, it's not potentially a weakness. And, you know, many of my uh, thoughts about personality even become we have heroic traits and anti-heroic traits. And, you know, these anti-heroic traits actually have a hero component, but many will look at them as villainous. Many will look at my non-conformity as sloppy, rebellious, um, careless, and you could say that. Or you could go, there's no boundary, there's no how do we think about what we've done in the past, there's not worry about it going wrong. Um, so there's a, there's these anti heroic components of personality that I think are super intriguing mm. and that come with a tax, but come with value at the same yeah. time. Yeah.
0: So. What about character and all these, this is something I was thinking about the other day. Cause we, we talked with Kimberly Dyer about Colby. We had uh, Alec Broadfoot on here and they have a, a an assessment they use over at uh, vision spark, the achiever uh, profile, I think it's called. And well, and I you know of course knowing a, a bit about a good bit about StrengthsFinder and so forth, it seems to me that none of these things, at least on the surface, talk about character. Is, same, that, is same, that fair?
1: Yeah, I think same with Culture Index. I think it's so hard to measure that and look and go. Well, how do we measure it? What are the components? So we just talk about it in Culture Indexes. We're not assessing morality. We're not mm-hmm. assessing um this character piece other than what are the traits and what's predictive yeah. of behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we talk about that it is predictive of behavior. We'll be able to talk about what that looks like, but in terms of yeah. honesty, integrity, other things that's a little more difficult. Yeah. Um is probably the short answer. Um you know, are there other things that we can look at the tool and start to understand and infer? Sure. But to go, hey this person's trustworthy, honest is not going to show up in the tool.
0: Yeah. One of the ways I explain StrengthsFinder is uh, Hitler operated <laughs> from his strengths. You know, he he did a bunch of dastardly stuff, but he didn't operate outside of his abilities. He operated within his abilities, yeah. I mean, arguably.
1: Well, and I think, you know, this is a, this is a big vistage learning that uh, what occurs, we assign meaning to. So in no way advocating anything Hitler did, but. Um, you look at the strength of people and weakness and there's both strength and weakness there. And, you know, same thing, we could look and say, Hey, and is there a moral compass? Is there an evilness? Yes. Um, Can we infer that from a culture index profile? Well, we can infer it in an indifference to people. We can infer it in a real liking of people. And both of those come again with value and tax. So, you know, we start to look at the interrelationship of traits uh, I talk about all the time does this person care more about results or relationships? And we can tell that from the profile. And so, you know, if you have something, a job that requires more focus on results, then you know what pattern to hire. If you have one that leans more about relationships, you know what pattern to hire. We also talk about are these offensive profiles or defensive profiles? We're quick to talk about, well, can defense score touchdowns? Yes. But is it their job? So you know, yeah. often people will look and go, "Well, I want my defense to score a bunch of points." You're like, yeah. "Well, that's not what this is for." So that's yeah. a defensive pattern. What should they do? They're going to tap the brakes and do it perfectly. Yeah. Are they going to lock down that corner? Yes. Are they going to score a bunch of touchdowns? Unlikely. Yeah, they're just
0: lucky. It's 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 uh. And then we go.
1: Then we go the opposite and go sales rep. Are they going to score a bunch of touchdowns? Yes. Is there going to be chaos everywhere this pattern goes? Yes. Mm -hmm. So we can just start to understand that predictively, and again, go value tax. So the moral thing's hard. There are patterns, high conformity that become moralistic, that become this is right and wrong and I push and Mm. that's more problematic. You can imagine those people that are high rule follower become this is the moral standard of doing it the right way and you'll hear them say things like there's a right, right, right way and a wrong way and I choose to do it the right way. That's a moralistic view of the world, and inferring that people that are, again, if we go back to that offense defense model that are offensive and scoring touchdowns are immoral. We're like, no, they're just pressing forward and getting us results, and they're not focused on details or process.
0: So, um, what, so when with culture, I, I, that was all super fascinating. Um, I, and I, I'm mystified at how, I don't know how seldom visionaries, entrepreneurs, etc., employ these tools that are so rich and so capable of helping them. And I wonder, uh, and from your vantage point, why do they hesitate to do this? Because they're, they're so prevalent. There's a lot of great tools.
1: Yeah, I think uh, all kinds of things, uh, Mark. I think if you look at this from a, a high-level perspective, many think it's voodoo. Many think, hey, this is bunk. Um, and the... Um, they also want to see perfect. And so the way I always frame it is that this is statistically strong, not perfect, that you will hire, we'll use trailblazer. An example of sales reps. And that's one of the ideal patterns. If we look at trailblazer, it's high autonomy, high social ability. So can they influence and persuade? Yes. Can they drive results? Yes. Can they build relationships? Yes. Are they impatient? Yes. Do they have enough conformity to follow our rules, like do call reporting Mm-hmm. to fill out CRM, to do, yes. Now, does that mean 100 out of 100 trailblazers will find success over quota? No, we're dealing with humans. But like Moneyball, it's 85 to 90% of those will. And on the flip side, we'll look at other patterns and go, I'm going to hire a craftsman as a sales rep, which is a steady methodical, measure twice, cut once, very deliberate, think CPA, mm-hmm. and go, do I want my CPA selling for me? No. Do I want my sales reps doing taxes for me? No. Right. And so I think we get caught up in that, that um, this should do the magic trick for me of being perfect. And instead, it's just a data point. It helps us confirm, ask the questions, dive right into reference checking, um, which is a lost art today. Um, yeah. imagine that. I think reference checking becomes, hey, we call the people on their reference list we call into HR, and HR says, I only can confirm employment. And you know I follow and ascribe to WHO, which says, do threat of reference check. And when we do reference check, actually do it. And the way I do that is we're interviewing people, and I go, Mark, who are the last three people that you worked for? What's their first name, last name? If they were here today, what would they say they admire and caution about you? Great. If we move forward, I'm going to talk to them. And then when we move forward, I go, Mark, you need to call these three people and get them on my yeah. calendar so I can talk to them. Yeah.
0: I get so much pushback from that. I use, and I'm, I'm laughing because you said write a reference check when I help my clients build a interviewing process or a onboard a recruiting process, we call it, recruiting flywheel. I use that in there, and it's from, from you know, top grading, from who, et cetera. Fa- um, fa- father-son team. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. Really good stuff. What's uh, Jeff Smart, Brad, Brad Smart was yep. the dad, right, yep. um, from top grading. Did you ever read that, top mm-hmm. grading? What a huge, it's like a tome. I mean, the thing was like 900 pages of just drudgery. Well, I always
1: joke, it's a calculus book. And if you want like the calculus for dummies, get his son's book, Who. It's a lot easier to read and digest and go through the same thing. So, you know, we we train uh, folks on how to do that. We train Mm -hmm. them on, hey, I have this data. It says this person, again, and I'll use me as an example. Um, And I use Jeff Ward as one of my references for... Uh, who was my culture index, uh, advisor for, for many, many years. And I used him to say, Hey, I'm looking for my next CEO gig. You should talk to him because he has a great understanding of who I am and who I'm not. And so, you know, he knew if, if you're looking for somebody to grow the company by 3% and put rigorous process and squeeze out the last little bit of margin, you got the wrong guy. If you want a guy who's going to challenge what you're doing every day and try to double the size of your business in a year, you got the right guy. And you know both of those come with good and bad and my good is good and my bad is bad and um you know if you were interviewing me you would want to say well dave this says you're in the bottom two percent of all people from conformity how does that show up well it shows up from the time that i was a young kid i wanted to do the opposite of what my parents wanted me to do when you know i chose college i chose the one that was furthest away um you know, that, there's a bunch in my psyche that says, well, that's who I am. And that brings again, strength and weakness. And mm-hmm. you can ask me about it. And what you're going to hear is I hire people to do that. If you expect me to do that, you yeah. shouldn't hire me. Yeah. Will I have people that will keep us inside the bumpers and bumper bowling. Yes. I'll put those people in place. I'll make sure we have the system in rigor. I don't want to break the law, but I will ask my head of, compliance and lawyer all the time they'll go can't do that i said can't do that why Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and what they're almost always saying is because there's too much risk right and then i would turn to them and go well that's your job help me minimize the risk what do we need to do it's a business decision not a legal decision right so you know those there's a bunch of this data that can help us um and help understand people um and reference checking is just one of those ways. Succession planning is another. Motivating, giving feedback is the third. I mean, the list goes on and on and on how we can use this data.
0: Do you have any good resources around uh, the hiring process? I know who who is great for who, uh, as far as who goes, I've had to uh, kind of like warp it a little bit for, you know, because he's talking about, you know, these kind of Fortune 500 CEOs and showing how they how they do some of this recruiting but any kind of practical books out there that you, that could be like a one and done hey you big dummy get better at recruiting here's a here's a
1: I, I still think who's the best and then I use a metaphor that I talk about everywhere I go which is could you find a better first baseman and so you know I apologize for anyone that doesn't follow baseball or thinks that you know the stereotypical men sports but um that's the metaphor I use all the time and and if you keep that top of mind and go, could I find a better first baseman It requires us that I'm recruiting all the time. If I'm managing a minor league baseball team or a major league baseball team, I'm always looking for, is there a better first baseman? And the way I also talk about it is metaphorically, it matches the maturity of our organization. So I've coached t-ball. And if you coach t-ball and go, could I find a better first baseman? It's almost a joke. I mean, I look and go, We gotta win in T ball. If I go, Timmy, you're playing first base, and he runs toward first base. I mean, that's our expectation of first base in T ball. Now, if he can catch, it's a bonus. Mm-hmm. Um right. your best player's playing like all infield shortstop roamer and he's you know, yeah. going after every yeah, ground yeah, yeah, yeah. ball and whipping it toward the first baseman. And most times you just kind of turn your head and go, Oh my god, I hope no one gets hurt in this play. But as we move toward Little League and high school, you expect your first baseman to catch everything in the zone. And as we mature and go up, I expect them to dig balls out of the dirt. I expect them to save us 40 errors a year. As we get to minor league, major league, I also expect them to hit near 300 and, you know, 40 to 80 RBIs a year. And so it's a heavy task. And I'm reminded of this. We went a couple years ago to the, the Dodgers when they were playing in the World Series, and they had pool holes at the end of his career. And the fans in L.A. are going hey, you fat slob, and they're screaming to him. And I'm like, yeah, that's because he's not now the best first baseman in baseball that he was for 15 years in a row. Right. And so, you know, could you find a better first baseman than Pujols today or two years ago? Yeah. Ten years ago, no. And so I think that's kind of the way I've thought about talent is that we just got to always be looking and saying, hey, that is the recipe to success and that – There's no substitute to that. If you look across any organization, my own journey in running companies, it's, man, the better team I have, the better the results, Mm -hmm. the better the culture, the better results. And so it is, can we get the right people in the right seats? Can we get them to act and behave? We want them to act and behave. All the work we do in Pinnacle points to that. It's, do we really mean it? Do we care about it? Are we deliberate about hiring? And are we always evaluating, giving people feedback to go, how do you get better? And most don't. So it's a long winded uh, answer. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a cheat sheet for that. I think who talks about how to find them. Yeah. And then, you know, there's books like the advantage that talk about how to get the most from them. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a great reference on, Hey, if you want more from a team and you want people engaged, lifting, doing the heavy work that our people in our culture are the, our competitive advantage.
0: I like the ideal team player, uh, by, uh, Linceoni.
1: Same. Advantage was a precursor to that just yep. saying here's the Yeah.
0: I think the Advantage is a great book. I've had a number of my clients before they started working with me or as they started working read the Advantage to give them just to get them to kind of go, "Oh, this is what a holistic view of what an organization
1: needs to nail." Yep. Kind of the invisible stuff. Yeah. All the all the culture stuff, which mm-hmm. is <clears throat> I talked about it in my own organizations that we have core values and they're alive and well and it you know, when I hired, I talked about them and said, hey, this is like Sesame Street. Um, And what I meant by that is one of us is not like the other. And Mm -hmm. if you're that person, you won't be here. You won't be on Sesame Street. And so this is what we care about. This is how we actually act and behave. And, you know, one of mine was, we're all willing to sweep floors. It was an early entrepreneurial company I had and one of our core values. And what I meant by that is we'll all chip in, we'll do whatever. And I would take it a step further and I would go, Mark, if I'm hiring you today and one of our core values is we're all willing to sweep floors. And the first time I assign work and you think it's beneath you and you kind of roll your eyes, I'm going to caution you. Second time I'm going to say, if that ever happens again, you won't be here. Third time it happens, I ask you to leave and go, this is what we mean by that here, that we all are willing to do that without regard to our position, to our ego, to our, we all want to win. And so we're willing to do about anything it is. And you see great organizations that do that every day and you have other people that go, yeah, it's not my thing. I'm not going to do it. I'm like, great, go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the other side is that most entrepreneurs get that, understand it. They're just not willing to make the tough decisions or mm-hmm. hold people accountable for that, um, fluctuation or variation from our core values. Yeah. And you know, I framed it. You have to be able to exist in our clubhouse. You got to meet the minimum standards. And if you just meet the minimum standards you better be batting you know 325 and hitting a bunch of home runs and that if you're all-star but asshole i'm gonna ask you to leave yeah and we want that but we don't want it at the the cost of culture so you got to meet the minimum bar this concludes part one of our interview with dave quick please join us in episode 047 for part two thanks for watching and listening to the business broken to smoking podcast and make sure to click subscribe.